What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And thank you to everyone who supports this podcast, especially the new patrons that we have this week. We have a massive thank you to our new patrons, Michelle and Jane Davis. Thank you so much. And if you would like to join Jane and Michelle, it's very, very simple. You just pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support, and you will get so many goodies. Just go and find out all the amazing things, a bonus material that you'll get uh, to play deep, deep dive with Mark and I. Mr. Stay, how are you doing, sir? I'm very good. I'm very good indeed. Hectic, hectic, traveling and finishing drafts and doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, living the life that I want, frankly. So uh, yeah, it's going pretty well. Pretty, Lovely. pretty, pretty good. And you're and, off to um, give, a, give a presentation at a universities now. You're getting in demand yeah, in universities across England. Isn't this brilliant? <laughs> They'll let anyone in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did one last week which at Brighton, which was terrific. It was really, really good. Uh, really just nice to meet young people who haven't been ground down by the world yet. <laughs> it's terrific. They're full of energy and ideas, enthusiasm. And uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm in Manchester tomorrow and I'm doing uh, an event with Queeve at Blackwells in Manchester. But if you listen to this, it's already happened. So, um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun day. Really looking forward wow, to it. That's exciting stuff. And uh, we would, we were kind of joking last week about an idea around doing some kind of spoiler special around oh. Unwelcome. But, you know, these jokes, they often, we run with them, don't we? And uh, it's, lo and it's behold. It's <laughs> yeah, it's happening now. It's happening. Well, not now, not now. Uh, yeah, we're going to have an unwelcome spoiler special on the 27th of April, 2023, uh, which uh, is a Thursday. And it's going to be on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out. It's going to be 8 p.m. British summertime, which is 12 noon your time. Uh, on, PST. The, um, pip, yep. And uh, it's uh, in New York. It will be uh, 4 p.m., I think. No, 3 p.m. Uh, uh, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. 3 p.m. rather. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in Australia, it's 5 a.m. the next day, confusingly. I'll put all this in the link so you can find this stuff out. But yeah, it's uh, come and join us. If you're an Academy member, if you're a patron, we're gonna, you're going to get the opportunity to ask questions up front. Uh, and, um, you know, particularly about that ending. Mr. D, I'm sure you've got all sorts of questions yourself as well. I certainly do. So, uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, we're going to re- finally reveal all. So if you haven't seen Unwelcome yet, you should be able to rent it or uh, buy it uh, from um, uh, your provider of digital movies. So that might be Apple, that might be Amazon, that might be Sky, depending where you are in the world. So it's available now. 
And uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Lots and lots of fun. A good hour of mayhem and red caps and it's goblins gonna be, and stuff. It's going to be brilliant. I mean, this is this is our very own spoiler special. Like, what podcast yeah. gets to do this of their own movie? So, if you haven't seen it, like Mark said, do do go and watch it. And um, uh, you will have questions. Absolutely guaranteed, you will have questions. <laughs> so write them down. And, and as we mentioned, if you're part of the academy and the um, the BXP team patrons, then you can submit in advance. If not, show up live because this is a live event, folks. You'll, me and Mark yeah. will be live on YouTube. It's going to be a ton of fun. If you've never been to a bestseller experiment live event before, they are absolutely hilarious and loads of fun. Anything can happen. That's the beauty of it. That is the beauty <laughs> of it. I mean, pretty much anything happens when we're recording the podcast, really, Mark, doesn't it? But but it's even more mayhem and lots and lots of fun. And you also get to chat with other podcast fans you get to meet people we've had friendships i'm sure there's been a marriage in there somewhere mark at marriage some point down births, marriages yeah all births, sorts yeah all kinds yeah, so no if question. you if you want to if you want to find your future mate then come <laughs> come and join us <laughs> on that day you've got a few weeks to watch the movie brilliant stuff now mr stay we've got a humdinger of an interview today haven't we i mean oh man it's not not many podcasts can say that they get former cia agents to interview and 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 not only that but they reveal all the secrets of the cia as well don't they i mean like, it's a massive exclusive we do we do we do pull them in it's brilliant but no in, in jesting aside do tell us about our amazing guest today david mccloskey Oh, David McCloskey is a former CIA analyst and consultant at McKinsey and Company. And while he was at the CIA, he used to write for the president's daily briefing. Uh, this was uh, when President Obama was around. He delivered classified documents. He was at oversight committees. He was up there. He also worked in CIA field stations across the Middle East, including Syria, which inspired his debut novel. And I've got a copy here, Damascus Station. And the Reviews for this are just phenomenal. Jack Carr, who's a best-selling author of a book called The Terminal List, and he's a former Navy SEAL sniper, he said he said uh, he's shocked the CIA's publication review board allowed it. <laughs> he said, read it now before it's banned. Uh, and there's a Hollywood adaptation uh, under discussion as well. So this is a hot book at the moment, uh, and it was such a delight to speak to David. So we discuss, among many other things, processing traumatic events through fiction, what spy fiction and movies get right and wrong, and why writing is a lonely team sport. Brilliant. So if, like me, you're a fan of Homeland, then you'll want to hear this interview as well. We'll talk a bit about that after the interview. But let's dive in and have a chat with Mark being interrogated. Or is it the other way around? You're interrogating a CIA <laughs> agent, Mark. Mark interrogating the wonderful David McCloskey. David McCloskey, welcome to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Our absolute pleasure. Well, I, I'm I'm very excited because I've got a copy of Damas Damascus Station right here, which is I've seen not just from your wonderful publicist who sent me every quote under the sun, but I've been seeing this completely independently. People saying this is the best espionage spy intelligence novel they have read since Le Carre, which is really saying something. So tell us, now I've now I've completely overhyped it, tell us about Damascus Station. Yeah, you bet. So um, Damascus Station is unsurprisingly a spy novel. Uh, it is set in the early years of the Syrian civil war. And I, I don't specify a date, but you could probably think of this as, you know, 2011, 2013, something like that. And it's a story about a CIA case officer named Sam uh, and his uh, Syrian recruit, Miriam, who uh, break one of the cardinal rules of espionage and fall into this 
forbidden relationship. They uh, travel to Damascus to hunt down uh, the killer of another CIA officer. And in the process of that, really come face to face, I think, with the tension and the, the conflict and the passion in their own relationship, as well as into conflict with a fairly uh, brutal pair of Syrian brothers, uh, one of whom is a bit more than, than he seems on the face of it, uh, and, and really uh, uncover a very dark secret at the heart of the Syrian regime. And so this is a book, obviously, about espionage and spycraft and all that fun stuff. But, you know, I'm also hopeful that uh, it's a book about, about love, about loyalty, about betrayal, and also, I think, what it means to be human in the middle of a very inhuman conflict. Excellent stuff. And let's make it clear, listeners, David, when he's writing about espionage and intelligence, he, the intelligence community, he, he does know what he's talking about. Uh long form fiction unlike the sort of daily barrage of news that we get it can give us a perspective on a situation like syria which i mean i i remember when all this kicked off it's completely overwhelming you're, you're getting all kinds of news and information this began i believe not as a novel but more as a kind of an an exercise that you were undertaking in order to make sense of of your time in the intelligence services and, and what happened in in syria can you sort of fill us in on that yeah, that that's right. So, you know, I worked pretty much exclusively on Syria when I was at the CIA and I lived there for a time before the war started. And as a result of that, I feel and, and felt and feel a very deep connection to that place and to its people. Um, and, you know, the war was really just kind of heart, it was heartbreaking. It's a tragedy on so many levels, but most of all, uh, you know, on, on, on the human level, right? And so when I left the agency, I was really deeply affected by that. And, and I, you know, I left in 2014. Um, and this was a time when the country was sort of starting this process of breaking apart. It was in a civil war. And, you know, we have now seen that the country, I mean, Let's even just put the earthquake aside, right? Yeah. Before that, we're talking about a country that has had half of its population displaced, you know, hundreds of thousands killed. It's broken apart into probably four political pieces right now. So, you know, the amount of human suffering that has been part of this process is just truly uh, staggering. And so when I sat down to write, it was much less about crafting a spy novel, to be quite candid with you. And much more about me working through all of that. And so it began, Damascus Station really began its life almost as a um, a series of just, I guess you could call them reflections or short stories, some of which were true, some of which weren't, to help me kind of process what I had seen and what Syria was going through. And I found through that process that I really, really enjoyed writing itself. That I'd never done it before. I had never taken a creative writing class. I had, you know, I think the last time I'd really done anything similar to this would have been in, you know, a literature class in high school. You know, I don't even think I took anything like that in college. Um, and so I, I found that I was able to connect with the world and with my emotions through writing, um, you know, but the product of that time 
I would never show to a single human alive today because it's terrible, you know, from a standpoint of a piece of fiction that's a story that someone would want to read. You know, it was not written with that in mind, but I, I put it all aside for a few years and then was able to come back to it. And I think having that distance uh, was helpful for me in thinking about, you know, how would I actually produce a story that not only I wanted to read, but that someone else wanted to read. And those two things aren't always the same. Yeah. As I under, let's get the time timeline correct. As I understand it, that those first sort of, as you say, little vignettes and reflections, that was written in a three-month gap between you leaving the CIA and starting a, a, another job. That's and right. then I believe it sort of sat on your laptop for four years. Is that correct? Five years. Sat five on my, years. Sat for five years, yep. Okay. And then... You came back to it. What was it that was it sort of calling to you all that time, or did you kind of wake up one day and think, "Now I'm ready"? What What was it that that brought you back to the the keyboard? Yeah, I think it was a couple things. You know, I had, I think through that five year period, there would have been occasional, you know, evenings where I might have had a whiskey or two and sat down and looked at it and thought, "I wish I could, I wish I had time to go back to this," but I was doing a consulting job in the in that span that was very demanding and that made this kind of creative exercise pretty much impossible. I also had a, you know, we started our family in that period. There are little kids running around. It's just, you know, not, not a more. great environment for getting the creative juices <laughs> flowing or focusing on anything. And what ended up happening was uh, in 2019, I actually, for a number of different reasons, was able to take a leave of absence for six months from my consulting right. job. And because I had remembered the way it felt to write and how much I had enjoyed it, I told myself and forced myself that I'm going to at least try in this period to write the book. And I think I thought when I started that process that I would be kind of polishing what I had worked on and what I quickly discovered was I just had to write something entirely new, uh, <laughs> but drawing on some of the inspiration from what I had worked on five years earlier. And when you, I, lo I love the idea that you sort of had a sense memory of what it felt like to write. And what what does it feel like to you now, sort of sitting down at the desk? What's the because you you have written before in in terms of you've written intelligence reports. Right for uh, pre the Obama um, presidency, I believe. Is that, is that correct? Um, I wrote, yeah, I wrote um, most, most of my writing would have been occurring during the Obama presidency. There was a little bit for um, Bush, but most of it was under Obama. Yeah. Okay. Whereas that, it's, what's, what's fascinating is, uh, you're, you, weirdly, you're not the first author we've had on the podcast this year who's written for a president. We had a, an author <laughs> called Christian Cameron who used to write intelligence reports uh, way back in the day. Um, oh, interesting. Um, okay. Um, what he told us, he said it, he he found that it was a great way to learn to write fast because he was writing sometimes 10,000 words a day. And he said he wrote without doubting himself. And he, he found that helped him become a novelist. Yeah. Hmm. What, what was it that you took from from that experience that, informed your your novel writing if anything yeah it's um it's an interesting question because there are definitely things that are similar and that have were helpful you know and transferred over to the writing of fiction and then there are other things that um if i had tried to imprint 
the way I wrote at the CIA to fiction, I think the book would have been much duller for it, right? Yeah. And, and wouldn't have worked. Um, I think practically the thing that's helpful about that kind of writing, um, which by the way is very dry, analytical mm. writing, but it's also precise. It forces a level of precision into the language and forces a mentality around the importance of every word that I think is very useful in fiction to have that obsession, right? You're looking at it with a different lens, but it's still this craftsman-like approach to, you know, really an, an, an obsessive approach with making sure that you are, you know, you're not being wasteful with words, you're being mm -hmm. economical, but you're also using the right ones at the right time. Um, and it also, I think, gave me an appreciation for the connection between the individual words up to the sentences, up to the paragraphs, up to the structure, and how it all has to hang together. Um, so that would be how I think that writing, because I, you know, I was doing that writing every day, all day, for eight years, right? right? And so that builds some habits in you. Now, I will say, though, that when I write fiction... So all that stuff's helpful. But when I write fiction, the thing that I found to be really almost mystical about it uh, is that I, I have the feeling, and it might just be a good story. I'm not sure how real this is, right? That when, when I'm in the flow and I'm writing, I am accessing something that the universe wants me to access. Right. And it's a different world maybe, but uh -huh. it's a way of better understanding our own. And so when I'm doing that, it's like I'm letting go of some kind of like conscious, almost like ego. And I'm open to letting this stuff in that is pure creation. And, and my role in it's sort of mysterious, like how much of it is me doing it, how much of it is something else. But I have like a weirdly, which is maybe strange for a write-up commercial fiction, I don't know. But I, I have a very kind of mystical view of what happens. And I find that to be really enchanting when it's, when it's moving. Now, it sucks when it's not because you're kind of sitting there just staring at a keyboard trying to bang away like, you know, or you spend a whole morning and you'll have two sentences that, that are terrible. But when you get to that point, it's really magical. And it's where all the best stuff comes from. The best plot ideas, the best character, you know, like it, it's where it's the swamp that everything kind of emerges from. And, and that's what I'm pretty addicted to. That is brilliant. I, that's the sort of thing I'd expect from a fantasy or science fiction author, <laughs> but not from someone who's dealing... Well, I mean, you're dealing with very real events here. And I, I saw in the acknowledgements in, in the back as well, you you kind of... You fictionalise reality. You refer to your version of the CIA as a fictionalised version of the CIA. So you are in some way, I, I guess, creating a kind of a parallel reality to, to what's going on. Um, what I was... I delighted to learn is the CIA has a publication review board. <laughs> so, they do. So, they do. Yes. So tell us about that, how that came about. Yeah. Well, um, you know, unsurprisingly, given the information that I had access to during my 
time inside. You know, they care about what I what I say and what I write <laughs> going forward. And on my last day at the agency, I was trotted into a room that would sort of recollect the vibes of a broom closet. And there was a, you know, woman at a desk in there with a stack of papers and she had me sign all of them. And I stupidly asked, you know, like, can I have copies of these? And she, of course, <laughs> laughed and said, you absolutely cannot. There will be no copies of anything. But what I found out in that debriefing was, you know, essentially that I'm required to submit anything that's really related to my my prior work, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, um, to the agency for review. So if I were writing a sci-fi novel, you know, that didn't involve any of this stuff, probably wouldn't have to submit mm. it. But I worked on Syria. I lived there. I'm writing a spy novel that features the CIA in Syria. <laughs> and, you know, I want I want to I want to more or less play by the rules, if, you know, if I can. So. I sent them the manuscript and it's really wonderful. It's actually, I, I will say they're very, it's, it's a very good organization to deal with. They're fast. They review things quickly. I have colleagues who um, have to submit their manuscripts to like DOD, the department of defense for review. That's a very, from my understanding, a very slow, um, you know, drawn out process that can take the better part of a year. Uh, you know, I believe that the person who reviewed Damascus Station finished it in about a week and got comp- got their you know edits back to me. I like to think that's because they loved it that's so a good much. Sign, yeah, <laughs> might have just been trying to get stuff off of their desk before vacation. And um, you know, it, the best part of of interact so, so they're they're great. And I will say that you know I had done my homework for this, and I had a document that I sent them that had about three hundred sources in it that showed how I had gotten the information from publicly available stuff, right? So I wasn't right. I wasn't coming out of the classified regions in my brain. So I had done my homework, but they still got it back to me quickly. The edits they made are, you know, were, were efficient and I think easy, you know, reasonable. Um, and, uh, but I will, I have to say the best part of, of the process is that I sent them a document that looked, you know, it was a Word document, right? That has the book in it. And what I got back was a, PDF that was in all caps. Everything had been turned to caps. And they literally, someone literally takes a black highlighter and blacks out the stuff wow. you can't use. Redacted, redacted, and send, redacted. And they send yeah. it back, you know? So it kind of has this wonderful feeling of coming out of a, you know, time machine from the 1960s or something like that when you, when you get it back. But it was, you know, it's kind of a funny bureaucratic quirk, I guess, of being a former agency officer, but it's, it's not, typically a hassle and they're they're reasonable that's i'm still reeling from the fact that they got back to you in a way i know every published author is listening to this is going well that's faster than my agent my editor you know <laughs> so, that's right I, I i do wonder if i, I might have submitted it before a holiday or something and they were trying to like clear the <laughs> clear the queue out you know uh, well, they, they were fast with the second one too so no it they're pretty good Good, good stuff. And you talk about, I mean, one of the reasons people love this book are the little details that make all the difference about, you know, modern intelligence. The thing that keeps coming up in almost every review and and interview I see is the hot dog machine. Can you tell us about the (laughs) hot dog machine? Yes. Well, so there there actually is a hot dog machine at Langley. It's in the basement, or as people who work in the Langley basement call it, the ground floor. And... (laughs) I have never seen a hot dog machine, vending machine anywhere else in the world. I'm sure it exists, but I have yet to see it. And it's it's down there. It's um, got Hormel hot dogs in it. It's loaded. 
in kind of the manner of a belt fed, you know, machine gun and <laughs> with, with, you know, with hot dogs. And I will say that, you know, the, the Langley cafeteria closes, at least when I was there, I think it closed at like four or four 30 in the afternoon. So if you have to stay late and you haven't planned to stay late, you know, your options are somewhat limited as it gets to be one or two in the morning. And by that point in time, you know, I, I, you know, don't care to admit this. The hot dog starts to look pretty good, you know? Um, but the actual number of those that I've consumed, I think will remain a highly classified fact that, that I will certainly not admit to. Fair enough. I won't press you on that. I won't press you on that. What's uh, now you've been rightly praised for the details. I mean, Jack Carr, the author, Jack Carr was amazed that the CIA review board let it pass. And he says, read it now before it's banned. People love this for getting things right. Uh, when we get experts in a field on the podcast, we'd love to ask them uh, what 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 writers get wrong in fiction. So, what what is it? What does it writers regularly get wrong in espionage fiction? And appreciating that James Bond is a fantasy, you know, we know right, that's right. that's so far removed from any kind of reality. But what is the kind of stuff that people get right? And then what what do people get right as well? Well, yeah, so I think your caveat's an important one because I am a huge fan of all kinds of spy fiction, including the stuff that's much more, you know, action-packed, shoot 'em yep. up kind of stuff. Like, I, I really enjoy that piece of the genre, and I read it all the time. I think it's great. It's great fun. Um, you know, so none of what I'll say is intended as some kind of slight at, mm -hmm. those, at those authors. It's merely to say yep. that, you know, I'm sort of, uh, I guess, trucking in a version of the genre that's attempting to layer on a bit more authenticity to the real, you know, real work of the CIA and in particular its operations officers. So, you know, I think in general, the kind of Hollywood version uh, of spy fiction tends to feature a lot more weapons and explosions than it is typical. Um, you know, you see in series like Homeland, for example, that CIA officers are operating, you know, and, and conducting operations on U.S. soil, which, you know, isn't really what happens. Mm. Um, you know, you see, well, I mean, heck, I even, you know, have this relationship between Sam and Miriam in the book that is, you know, I, I really think it's wonderful in, in the novel, but in real life, you know, that rarely have ever happens. And if it does, you're, you know, you're toast, your whole mm. career is over. This isn't like sort of a, aw shucks, uh, <laughs> brush it off kind of a thing. Um, you know, I, I do think that the kind of hard, slow work of, uh, recruitment, uh, you know, recruiting human assets is not frequently dealt with in spy fiction. Um, you know, one, a, a book that I, I love, and it's probably my favorite of, uh, of the Le Carre canon is Little Drummer Girl, because right. it does, I think, an excellent job of dealing with the psychology, the manipulation, intimacy of that type of relationship, mm. uh, you know, between Charlie and, and Gaddy Becker. And so I, I love that book because of that, you know, that authentic, that authentic treatment, um, you know, the other thing that it, it's sort of tough to figure out how to do in fiction is because you're not trying to clutter up your your book with too many characters is, you know, the actual CIA is a large bureaucracy uh, that, um, 
you know, there, there are more than like three people in the station in Damascus, for example. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to whittle these kind of, you know, you have to whittle your portrait of the organization down to a manageable number of characters so you can really keep the tension high and not, frankly, get the reader confused. And so you end up with, you know, operations that get approved by a single person or that there's two or three people in the discussion when in real life, you know, there's like going to be doing any of this stuff. I mean, there would just be armies of people involved and tons of lawyers and, you know, it would quickly kind of turn into a, a not interesting bit of fiction. But in reality, that bureaucracy is very much present. Um, and, and that's not usually dealt with in, in spy fiction. Um, so, you know, I think what I enjoyed doing with this book was taking pieces of the bureaucracy and whatnot to create something that maybe was approaching a bit of an intelligence procedural in some ways with, without hopefully, you know, so you have that authenticity that comes into it, which was important to me. Uh, but, you know, I still, I still made stuff up and, and I had to sacrifice reality at parts on the altar of character and story. And I will say that one of my favorite reviews of this novel is that the CIA's um, Center for the Study of Intelligence, they do like a quarterly, I'm not sure how often, maybe it's quarterly, it comes out. They do a book review, they do book reviews in there. And so the, the, the CIA reviewed my book and there's a wonderful review that points out a whole bunch of the things that I sort of sacrificed on the altar of fiction. It's, it's one of my, it's mostly a positive review, but the things they call out, I think are quite quite humorous. I would definitely recommend that to your listeners to go take a look at that. Oh, we will. If you could send us a link, that would be great. I uh, I mean, what I've been seeing as well is, you know, there are things like conversations about photocopier paper and staples and all these tiny little things that can, people in the field, it can drive them nuts. You know, you think you can, you know, you've got spy satellites and what have you, you've got these great technological advances, but the tiny things can drive you nuts. And that that's there's a lot of that in there as well, adding to that reality. Yes, a hundred percent. And I, you know, honestly, um, the way that my characters see the CIA is, is probably the way that I see it, which is, and I've described it this way before, is kind of a uniquely bipolar organization. So you have on the one hand, you know, the very interesting and extreme things done to achieve the mission. And then on the other hand, you have all the mundane bureaucratic stuff that goes along with being a large organization. And one of those things is, you know, oftentimes your procurement arm isn't matching supply and demand. And so you don't have, you know, some of the basic things that that you need just from an office supply or office furniture standpoint. And yet the organization is also doing these amazing things over here. And that, that tension, that duality, uh, I always found it to be, you know, humorous and, yeah. and also hopefully insightful and I wanted my characters to experience that as well. And, and honestly, the, the reason why I ended up putting so much of this stuff, like, the, you know, there's mentions of agency regulations and things like that in the book, um, was I, I wanted, you know, my it, it was driven by character. You know, it wasn't some desire to kind of just randomly sprinkle stuff mm. through. It was, I'm dealing with, you know, in particular in the case of Sam, you know, who's probably the protagonist of at least the first part of the novel, and his chief upstation in Damascus, Artemis Proctor, they're CIA operations officers. That's their world. This is how they think. Yeah. And so the character, you know, trying to, to dial those characters in was what led to 
I think, becoming a little bit more of a procedural in some respects. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned making stuff up there. <laughs> and I think I think you're in good company because I, I don't. Listeners might not know this, but you know, for example, John Le Carre, he would invent phrases which have now become right. part of the terminology that the intelligence community uses. So, like the word "mole" for a deep cover agent, which he used in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, he made kind of made that up, and it's now yeah. common common parlance. And other phrases like uh, "fieldcraft" and "scout hunters" and 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 so. Have you any ambitions? Are, are there any words in Damascus Station, any phrases that you hope make it in? You know, because they, they put that review where they, they kind of pointed out all the things that you sacrificed. But who knows? They might be using those terms in a few years. <laughs> so I have to admit uh, that I have not been as ambitious. For, I don't even know if he was intending to create a new vocabulary. No, no, no. Um <laughs> But but he did, you know, and I think Mick Heron has kind of done the same mm. thing with some of his, you know, like yeah. he refers to the investigators, I think, in in the, you know, Slow House novels as, you know, the dogs and things like yes, that. That dogs, yeah. And you sort of you think about it and it's like, well, yeah, if you were inside right now, you know, you'd, you'd want to adopt some of that terminology. And, and 20 years from now, everyone would just think that it came from inside. The one one other interesting um, anecdote on, on the adoption of Le Carre's terminology is that the CIA's um, old Soviet, Central Europe and Soviet division uh, used to be called, I believe it was called CE division and then S or SE division and then CE division, I believe. And some old timers going to yell at me after they hear this podcast because I messed up the, the names. But um, after the Russia House came out, the CIA started to call the entity inside Langley that works on Russia, Russia House. It oh. wasn't called Russia House before, and now it is called Russia House informally. And it's not, that doesn't show up on any org chart anywhere, but everyone refers to it as Russia House because of John Le Carre. Um, so I'm not, I have not been as ambitious in creating my own vernacular. I think uh, perhaps as the books go on, I might throw some things in that you know, that, that do that, or that maybe attempt to do that, or that frankly, even without me attempting might just hopefully catch on. But I, so far, I think in, in particular in Damascus station, I was really trying to hew to reality more so than making, making that kind of thing up. Very good. We'll it's, it's kind of out of your hands, isn't it? But you know, if you start right. seeing hot dog machines turning up in <laughs> remote parts of, uh, the intelligence community, you know, you've done something. I'd I'd love to talk about because I we know that writing is a very solitary occupation. But I saw in uh, the acknowledgments you make reference to your father, who's a writer, uh, and you mention your wife Abby as well. Yeah, you mentioned that they gave you feedback, and how, how has that worked with them as as a kind of a family affair? Yeah, well, you know, I, I talk with a lot of different writers about their process, and I'll say that there are pretty wide kind of range of approaches to this, but, and none of them are right or wrong, but what, what works for me has been writing the first draft. And I'll, you know, I'll talk to my, in particular, my wife about the plot and the story, but she, she won't typically read anything until I'm done with that first draft. I, I really try to get that down on paper before anyone's really engaging with the written word. And through that process, you know, if I have questions about a particular, you know, um, aspect of the, you know, of agency operations or a bit on, okay, you know, some cultural piece about, 
you know, someone who did this kind of work at the agency or any other kind of technical question, you know, I'll, I'll be asking those in kind of, you know, phone calls or emails throughout the process, but I don't really show anything to anyone until that first draft is done. But once that draft is done, I typically try to get us a reaction from different types of readers. So I have people who read particular parts for technical stuff. I have, you know, like my wife and some family members who will read it uh, because, you know, they have, you know, an interest in, in helping me and an eye for, you know, helping me avoid horrible pitfalls, you know, and then I'll have people read it who uh, are spy fiction aficionados and who read all this stuff. And then I frankly go out every book and I try to find a small group of people who don't really read spy fiction at all, um, but who read a lot, you know, mm-hmm. um, and read outside the genre because I just want the, you know, a kind of completely unvarnished assessment of the story and whether or not it's too wonky at parts and does it get bogged down and all that. So I like the process to eventually become much more outward facing and to bring a lot of perspectives into it, because I find that frankly, it helps me to think through the story more effectively and to really put the writing, the story, the characters, the plot, all of it under a very grueling examination to, you know, then go back and go back into a whole kind of once I have all that feedback, you know, I've got like, for example, I've got my third novel written. I've got, uh, or close to written, I guess, and I'm starting to get feedback on it. And, you know, it's, um, it, it's a very helpful process for understanding where you've screwed stuff up and how it can be better. Uh, so it's, I think I said in the acknowledgements, like it's a, you know, it's a lonely team sport, <laughs> the creation <laughs> of a novel, um, because there are these periods where you're just alone doing it, you know, plunking away. And then there's other periods where, at least for me, I've found, you know, you, you want, you want all that opinion to help shape it into the best possible story it could be very good very good stuff indeed um you mentioned book two book three so this is is this are these continuing the same kind of characters the same series or are they standalones what's what's in the future david so i would think of it as the same universe but not necessarily a kind of contiguous series so in the second book which will be out later this year um it's Russia focused. It has some overlap in characters. Artemis Proctor comes back in a larger role in the second book. Um, you know, and a few minor characters are back, but she's kind of the principal connection point. And then the third book, which again, I'm in the process of writing, is very Proctor focused. She is the protagonist of that book. And it's really her story. It's also. Um, at least in its current form, although this could change, uh, a bit of an homage to Tinker Taylor. So it centers on a mole hunt at Langley and Proctor is in more or less the George Smiley role in that novel. So that one is, you know, and they all, the books all relate to one another, but they're all, you could do them all as a standalone. You could read them all as a standalone too, at least in, in, in their current form fantastic can't wait well david thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today folks damascus station is out there now grab a copy before it gets banned uh, <laughs> and, uh, enjoy david thanks so much hope to speak to you again soon take care
I mentioned before the interview that Homeland was one of my favorite. Actually, I've got to, I've got to admit, it's my second favorite show ever after, of course, filling the gaps. Everyone Breaking knows. Bad. One, two, three, Breaking Bad. <laughs> Breaking Bad. Uh, but, but Homeland <laughs> actually was, was, a, was a close second. And I was so excited when I heard that David was coming on the show because um, so much of what he's writing about is capturing a lot of the magic and essence of what made Homeland such a great series. But right, to be able to right, kind of right. pick up the book um, with an actual CIA agent who, who's, you know, an analyst who's been on the front line is absolutely brilliant. Um, but what I found fascinating about what David was saying is this book took a long time to come to fruition. It's a sense of like, mm. it needed time to marinate. And I wonder how often that happens when people have been in, say, a career for most of their life. And they have this, this, um, these ideas, but there's this idea of this marinading, marinading, pro, marinating process, which he went through. I think it's very common. I think it's happened with me. I mean, weirdly, you know, Robot Overlords is coming up for its 10th anniversary this year. And I've been looking at my diaries from 10 years ago. And there's one from Tuesday, 26th of March, so almost exactly 10 years ago when we recorded this. Mm. And I've got a note that my agent enjoyed Winter's uh, the original version of Woodville was called Winter's Books of Myths and Magic. Uh, she enjoyed M- M- Winter. She gave me a few pointers uh, over the phone for improving the pitch doc, blah, 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 blah. So 10 years ago, I was working on a version of what became The Witches of Woodville. Uh, so, you know, these things, you think, great, I'll knock this out in six months, another bestseller kind of thing. But sometimes they take a long, long time to discover their shape, to discover their form, you know, to to become what what they what they truly are, and this is because I think we we will have an idea of something that is half formed in our heads, much like this sentence uh, that we slowly <laughs> slowly piece to see exactly. Yeah, <laughs> podcast is just one big metaphor. Uh, you know that we slowly glom these things together and go, oh. That's what it's about. And there comes a moment, and it can sometimes take years. There was something I was working on at the beginning of the year that that I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I know exactly what this is. I put it together. uh, And I did a first draft, and I thought, well, that's not what I wanted. I wasn't expecting that at all. So I've I've put it away. I put it away, and it is going to marinate, and it's there ticking away at the back of my head. And at some point, uh, I've moved on to something else. And when I finish that, I'll come back and have a look at it and think, and it's like looking at a diamond. You look at it, all the different facets from different angles, and you know, and eventually you find what you're looking for. You find the shape and all the refraction and what have you. Yeah, I think it's really, really fascinating. But and the, but the the danger of that, of course, the danger of that, and I'm sure there's people who recognise this as well. Is there is a danger that the idea of allowing something to sit for too long can either make it stagnant. I always think about running water or you know the still pool, pond. Or it can become an excuse for procrastination. Oh, I'll just let it marinate yeah, a bit yeah, more. Yeah, and yeah. so it's it's a really <laughs> difficult balance, isn't it? Because you, you I, I totally get understand the need to sometimes let things sit. And I think that's a very good and what does it do? I mean, in, if you think about the literal metaphor of marinating, it tenderizes, it makes it easier to digest and swallow. In many ways, it's it's more flavorful because you've let it sit. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You've got absolutely. the perspective, right? But if it becomes about procrastination and you just, I'll just let it sit for another month, another year, I know that that can be, a, and I think there can be a tendency for people to use it as a, an excuse not to just get on with it and get going with it. 
Yeah, but what you do while that's marinating, you get on with something Work else. Work with something else, yeah, exactly. As long as you're doing something, that's the most important yeah. thing, isn't it? So if, if yeah. that's your uh, story I mean, I, that you're just waiting to be ready for you, that's never going to really happen, is it? No, I had a one-to-one with someone the other day, and they were kind of stuck on this one project. And, and one of the reasons they were stuck in it was because they were writing it at a very difficult time in their life. And they had a, every time they sat down to write the story, they had associations with that period in their life. And they're close to finishing, but they just they just can't get it over the line. So I've said, put it away, put it away. Work on work in a short story. Work on something new, completely fresh, completely different. Something that you're and it just so happened they had something actually on on the back burner to extend this cooking metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I said, well, you know, work on that instead. You've already got something with it. Have some fun with it. Work a write a short story based on that. Well, just do something else, just so you can rediscover the joy of writing. Because every time they were sitting down, they were thinking, oh, this is painful. And that's not a good place to be in. So I've said to them, put that to one side. It's not going anywhere. It will always be there. Do something that's fun and joyous and, and where you're not carrying the burden of of all these associations and discover how you love writing again then maybe you can come back to that brilliant now who'd have thought we've got a cia analyst being interviewed and he's talking about he's talking my language accessing something the universe wants us to access it's magical and mystically said I mean, about this idea of getting wh- when i flight. when i sent this to you did you expect to be discussing mystical creative universal energies i, I mean, love it you know <laughs> i think it's absolutely brilliant i mean you know that, call it what you want but that for me when i'm in when i'm in the zone yeah. you know writing that's that's kind of what it feels like you know it is and i think he just you know david described it so well this idea of he used this word mystical which is you know it's a great word because it's often we use when we can't quite explain it. You know, it's yeah, something yeah, yeah. out there which just we feel it, but we can't really put it into words. And I think I think every single writer who's ever got into something in any shape or form have experienced that either a flash moment of it where it's like 10 seconds of moment of inspiration where you just think, whoa, where did that idea come from? Or I'm sure. I mean, I don't know what, how how many times you've experienced Mark, but I experienced it once where I started writing an idea at about six o'clock in the evening, and I literally, I literally kind of almost came out of a trance at about five a.m. in the morning because the birds were singing, right. and I couldn't believe that I had written for like nine hours without even it felt like I wasn't even breathing. I was just so into this idea, and it would just. And I was trying to write it down quick. You know, it's coming quicker than I could write it down. Have you what when you get these moments of being in the zone or being in the flow? Are they are they flashes or are they kind of moments where you sit down for two hours and the whole the whole time just vanishes? It's usually two hours, and it's um it's usually in the morning, and it's part you know it's part of my and you have mornings where it doesn't come or it's not quite working, but when it yeah it's it's like uh it's it's like I've been hypnotized or had a deep bath yeah. or had a nap or whatever yeah i come out like slightly giddy almost. yeah yeah come out i come out slightly giddy um but very very happy and satisfied and it's um it's it's not every time doesn't happen every time i tell you what i had it this afternoon really? uh because yeah because i've been um because i'm away for the next three days mm. i've got a deadline for a script uh, rewrite 
And what I wanted to do was finish it today so I can give it to my writing partner. So while I'm away, she can look at it and, and dig into it. And I managed to get to the end of the script. But that was because I all notifications were off. You know, head was down and uh, it just, um, I had lots of good notes. And it's just, I was just in the zone and it felt so good. Now, I know that writing isn't perfect. I'm going to come back to it and edit it and blah, 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 blah. But I basically did about, 25 pages a script which is wow. normally that's, i'm happy if i get if i get three to five pages a day done i am oof. over the moon so that's going so, some so not only not only do you, do you get you're more productive but would you also say that you do your best work when you get in that zone yeah it's almost definitely. like you're not questioning yourself you just exactly the thing the key what thing is there, flow it's like there's no stops uh, the, right the key thing that David said is letting go of the ego and letting creation in. That self-doubt thing, we've talked about this a lot, uh, that that thing of looking over your shoulder, doubting yourself, let go of that. I sound like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Let go, use the force. Uh, you know, you've got to, you've just got to trust the process, just trust the process. And yeah, some of what you'll write is imperfect and we'll need editing, but getting it on the page is so important. Interestingly, the more you self-doubt, if you think about this over the lifetime of your writing, the more you self-doubt, the more of your time is spent being blocked or self-blocked, you could almost call it, because mm. you're questioning. Every time you question, you're taking up precious writing time. And if you were extrapolating that over the lifetime, imagine someone started writing in their, say, 20s, and they lived to the ripe old age of, I don't know, 90. That's 70 years of when you when you when you add that up it would be literally probably years spent doubting yourself instead of just writing it because and and so there's a there's a continuum isn't there there's people that are, you know everyone has a degree of self doubt or they they question things too much they an over analyze things too much and we're all on this continuum of like 1 to 100 somewhere along that scale and so if you're listening to this and you self doubt a lot this is the motivational minute jumping out but if you if you listen to this and you self doubt a lot why don't you work out what that actually will mean to you over your lifetime in terms of how much time you're going to lose to writing just because you're doubting something. It's kind of bonkers. I mean, it would, it can literally take years off your writing life, I think for some people. And it's a practice, I believe it's a practice to, to, to when you hear that voice in your head saying, Oh, this is rubbish or this won't work or this, this is, I'm not feeling this rather than engaging with that voice, just tell it to shut up and move on right? And just keep writing and trust, like you said, Mark, trust the process because by the, the end process. of the process, you might discover that you have to go through those, that questioning, because that's what a lot of novel writing is. It's about questioning things yeah. all the way through. It's question, 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 and eventually get to the end, which is maybe the, the big answer of how it all fits together. But allow the questions and embrace them, but don't let them stop you in your tracks. Mm, trust the process you must yes mm, let now, go i love it's my third impression it's third impression today it's amazing i love i love 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 what david said about writing being a lonely team sport i've never heard yeah. it never heard it's it kind great, of isn't it? shaped like that before and i think that it does it, it acknowledges these two facets that we have as a writer the first facet is that we do like, I think we are drawn to liking time on our own because that's 
you, you can't not enjoy that if you're a writer. It's part yeah. of the therapy of, I think, having that time to just go mm. away and hide and sometimes get away from the chaos of your life or the, the noise of the kids or shut yourself off from the thoughts of work or all the other things and dramas happening in your life and just kind of escape to write. And so there's this idea that it is very isolating. And we sometimes say, oh, that's a major problem. You know, it's too isolating in some cases. But it is this balance, isn't it, Mark? It's a balance between that isolation and that time to yourself and then interacting with other people in your writing team, as I like to think of it, you know, beta readers, uh, well, editors, this is, publishers. This is, the, this is the, the yin and yang, isn't it? See, totally I can is. do woo-woo too. Um, <laughs> It's that thing, you know, you have that moment of isolation. You have that where you don't doubt yourself, where you get everything on the page. And then you have to emerge from that and say to people, what do you think of this? Does this make any sense? And that's where the teamwork comes on. So, you know, call them what you want, beta readers, sensitivity readers, whatever, technical checks, whatever you want to call it. It's all part of your due diligence as an author. I don't think there are many authors uh, who will just, you know, put something down as a first draft and then put it out without showing it to anyone else. There I are there that's... are people though that do that though, Mark, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure I there think are. there's more than we probably They're think because I think a lot braver of people... Braver people than me. Well, they are, but I think a lot of people <laughs> when they start writing, yeah, it's a bit yeah. like, um, I don't know, it's a bit like in a lot of things where we take on, if we've got a bit of knowledge about it and we're kind of, we've got a confident personality... When we start that process, we think, yeah, this is great. This is awesome. Put it out there without that knowing that it could be that much better or being so close yeah. to it that we can't see our own mistakes, for example. The, key, the key word you said there was a little knowledge, and a little knowledge <laughs> exactly. is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous it? thing, yeah. You know, you if think, you have oh, a little like- bit of knowledge about coding... Hmm. Yeah, won't I, probably go too well for you if you try and like. But yeah, well, I think it's, it's like I know a little bit about spies. I'll write about spies, and and of course, all your knowledge of spies has come from watching Bond and Jason Bourne and this and that and the other. And then you end up just recycling a bunch of cliches. Whereas if you right, you don't like if you want to write, write about spies, spies, you don't have to have worked for the CIA. But I would suggest talking to someone who has. You know, uh, yeah. just this week we've got a deep dive with uh, Stuart Gibbon, who used to be in the the police force in the UK. He's done a deep dive for us, answering our listener questions on all the processes of the you know the UK police force. Now we all think because we've seen some documentaries on TV or seen Watch episodes the of the Bill, or <laughs> yeah, we think oh we know what the police do. We don't. We got you know we've got to keep up to date with these things. So it's all part of your due diligence as an author and some of that is is about writing about outside your own experience so you you know uh, as i mentioned in the next woodville book i've got characters suffering from ptsd now i know very little about that so i went to two people who live with ptsd and they read what i'd done some research beforehand i I did as much as i could in isolation then i gave it to them and said right what have i got wrong and they gave me really really useful notes so this is all part of what we do as authors now i don't think you could ever be have the hubris to not you know not do make this part of your process now it can only make it a better book but it can also be a challenge for people to find sometimes highly specialized like i mean I, I could say, hand on heart, well, we know David now, but I don't. I wouldn't know anyone that I could reach out to in the CIA to ask for feedback. But that's where someone like David's book could be useful. If you're into, if you're thinking about writing a book about or elements of the CIA, read books by people that have been in the CIA, even if they're yep. nonfiction or fiction. I think nonfiction comes into play here as well, where you want to get really specialised knowledge about something. Reading a book around that area can be a really useful thing to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Excellent stuff. Now, if you would like to join Mark and I in the extended edition of this podcast, this week we're going to be talking about the need to process things in your life by writing and the importance of doing that. We're also going to talk about taking time off, the idea of a sabbatical, but also discussing is it essential to have a deadline with a sabbatical? Is that the thing that makes all the difference? We're going to talk about the practice of making every word count on the page and quirky details which capture reviewers' imaginations, such as the hot dog machine. We're also going mm-hmm. to look at the making of sacrifices, the things we have to let go of on the altar, as David talked about it. And finally, we're going to give you a little preview into who's coming on the show next week. So for that and more, join us in the extended. Pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. So folks, if you missed the extended version, we actually have a humdinger. We talked all kinds of things. Least of all, a five minute discussion about the importance of hot dog machines, which doesn't sound very important, but... (laughs) We, we actually linked it, didn't we, Mark? We should just say, it, it, if anyone's read Back to Reality, yeah. our hot dog machine was the cow. So if you haven't read Back to Reality, go go read the book and then it'll all make sense. It'll all make sense. So Mark, tell us what's happening on socials this week. All sorts of good news this week. Uh, so on the Academy, Karen Story, uh, she says, another win. I'm actually now a paid author. Uh, Karen says, this is totally unexpected and it may, may be my favourite win today because I belong to the Society of Authors. I have free membership to the ALCS, which is the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society in the UK. She said, they sent me a statement via email last week, which I didn't bother to open because I thought it would just be zero. She, you know, Karen doesn't have a book out there, but... She wrote some magazine articles a few years ago that she'd never even listed with them because she was sure there was like a three-year limit for magazines. But anyway, she did the list uh, and she did list two short stories that appeared in anthologies. And anyway, she got 92 quid out of it. So uh, <laughs> That's not yeah. bad. Yeah, cool. it's just fantastic. So uh, it's her first payment as an author, which is always a joy. Oh, I, big milestone. Everyone... If you've written an article, if you've done a, if you have had a script made, if you've got a book made, sign up with ALCS, the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society. Uh, it's a one-off payment. It's like thirty-six quid or something like that. Or if you're a member of Society of Authors, it's free. Uh, I think they pay out twice a year. Uh, I got quite a chunky bit of change uh, from this one. I think it's the most I've ever had because. Um, Robot Overlords was shown in Spain and Japan and Germany, so I get money for that. But also uh, in the UK, we have PLR, which is the uh, public public lending right. So every time someone takes a book out the library, I get about 30p. But ALCS does the international version of that as well. So if your book is being taken out of libraries across the world, you get money for that too. So sign up. I'll put a link in the show notes for both of those so you can check those out. Wow, that's amazing. That got got me thinking about how people could completely uh, take advantage of that at your local libraries by taking books out and returning them and taking them out. <laughs> <laughs> Just hire a kid I'm during the summer. Oh, I'm no. all for it. That's yeah. like people on Spotify. Like they, they finish, they, you know, so friends of mine who are artists, they'll they'll finish their day in the studio and they'll just put Spotify on and play their album on repeat all night, come back well, in. I mean, the weird, the weird, the weird thing pence. is... Yeah, well, the weird thing is, third, it's about 31p for each time a book is taken out. Wow. That's more than most authors will earn from like a Kindle promotion. Well, that's sale. the crazy thing. Yeah, because you often think, yeah. I mean, the, the, the stereotype is, oh, you don't, want, you don't want your book to be taken out of the library loads because then people aren't buying it. But the irony is you earn more money by the sounds of it than versus, yeah. say, Kindle yeah, release. Great. That's amazing. 
Now, you remember we've uh, had Susie Edge on the podcast. We've had a fantastic deep dive with Susie talking about uh, her, her TikTok account and history and her, and her amazing book. She's got a new book coming and she's got a pre-order campaign that's kicking off. Uh, the, and she mentioned this in that deep dive episode. So you heard it here first, folks. Uh, her new book is called Vital Organs, A History of the World's Most Famous Body Parts. I mean, who doesn't want to read that? That just sounds amazing. Uh, and it's coming up September 2023. Uh, she's, you know, you can pre-order special signed editions from Goldsboro and all sorts of great stuff this is Susie she's in our BXP group you know she's one of our family it's amazing to see such a terrific pre-order campaign kicking off I think it's going to be one of the big hits of the autumn Uh, I'm going to put links in the show notes so you can check that out and to Susie's uh, deep dive about TikTok which I I mean she's is just smashing it absolutely smashing it brilliant stuff Susie and I've got to say okay every single person in the world is going to open that book and go straight to the index. You know what I'm going to say. I'm not even going to say it, but you know what they're going to they're going to look for. But anyway, moving straight on. What a what a great idea for a book. Absolutely brilliant. I hope it really I hope it flies off the shelf for you, Susie. It's brilliant news. It's fantastic news. And uh, now, just as a little amuse bouche at the end of the show, Julian Barr, friend of the podcast, Julian Barr is fantastic author. He's my short stories editor. He's you know he's he's terrific. He cheeky lad he went to chat gpt gtp whatever it's called the chatbot thing and he said to it i'm planning to write a novel should i write a fifty thousand word outline <laughs> do you want to know what it said right. go on it said there's no definitive answer to this question as different writers have different approaches to planning and outlining their novels some writers prefer to have a detailed outline to guide their writing process while others prefer to work with a more flexible pl- flexible plan or no plan at all. That being said, a 50,000 word outline is quite extensive and maybe overkill for some writers. We're getting a bollocking from a chatbot, <laughs> right? It, it could be AI. useful if you have a complex if you have a complex plot or a lot of characters and you need to keep track of all the details. However, it could also be overwhelming and inhibit your creativity if you feel tied to the outline and are unable to make changes to, or deviate from it. Ultimately, the most important thing is to find a planning process that works for you and helps you write your best work. Some writers find it helpful to create a rough outline to give them a general direction and framework for their story, while others prefer to jump right in and let the story unfold as they write. Experiment with different approaches and see what works best for you. So that's that's that was the first one. That's okay? fascinating. Then Julian asked <laughs> the chatbot to write the response in the voice of Ben Aronovich. <laughs> 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 and here's what it came up here. It says, sure, here's a rewrite of my previous response in the voice of Ben Aronovich. Well, mate, <laughs> the answer to that question <laughs> is a bit complicated, in it? Every writer has their own way of approaching the planning process. Some prefer to have a detailed outline to keep them on track, while others like to fly by the seat of their pants. Now, a 50,000-word outline is quite a hefty thing, and it could be useful if you've got a lot of characters and plot points to keep track of, but it could also be a bit restrictive if you're not able to change things up as you go along. What I reckon is that you need to find what works for you, mate. Some writers like to have a rough outline <laughs> to give them a basic framework to build on, while others prefer to dive right in and let the story develop as they go along. The most important thing is that you find a process that lets you tell the story you want to tell in the way you want to tell it. Well, that's far too polite, isn't it? I mean, what would you I prefer? I was going to say, that? 
Or the bollocking if, uh, episode. Okay. Yeah. So Julian, you've got you've got to redo that, and you've got to say an angry Ben Aronovich. I think that <laughs> that would be interesting. Isn't that brilliant though? I think it's absolutely fantastic. It's fantastic. And uh, yeah, the question is, is that you know, um, I mean, it's spot on in some ways. It's like I mean, it's summarising what Ben told us, but uh, <laughs> just in a far, far more pleasant way and gentle way. Yeah. Sometimes you do need a good whip up the. But not as memorable. Not as memorable. Not as memorable. You know? No, no. AI can never capture the uh, the magic of a oh, uh, Ben Ronovich, an, an author, <laughs> absolutely gobsmacked by uh, two writers <laughs> trying to finish a novel in a year. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. Excellent. Well, folks, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we really look forward to uh, giving you all more of the good stuff next week as well. We've got an amazing guest coming on. So folks, thank you so much for being with us this week. And if you would like to join the 200 Word Challenge, develop the habit of a lifetime of writing, pop along 200wordchallenge.com. Try our free seven-day challenge. Can you write for seven days in a row and, and uh, bank 200 words minimum each day? To do that, just pop along to the website and register. And Mark, if people would like to find us on socials, we are on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Drop us a line there. If you want to drop us a line directly on email, go to bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. If you've enjoyed the episode, whether whatever podcast you're listening on, uh, give us a rating, a review even, and just subscribe. All of that stuff makes us more visible, helps us to get more amazing guests on the show and help make you a better writer. So it's kind of, you know, it's it's helping your career, essentially. So yeah, Absolutely. go for it. Yeah, mm. do it. And if you'd like to get a weekly update of what who we've got on the show and everything we've learned and everything you can learn from them, just pop along to the website, click on the newsletter tab and sign up to our weekly newsletter. So Mr. State, have a great week. Can't wait to chat with you more next week. Have a brilliant right week, everyone. And just a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.